Hey, if, uh, if you're new to City Life, we use uh, an app. Uh, it's for either uh, Android or iPhone. It's called Uversion. And, uh, and you can, if you don't have an account, if you create an account on Uversion, uh, you can go in there for our services, and we have what's called a live event. And, and what that does is all the notes for the service tonight are in there, uh, and it also all the verses that we're going to read together or will populate them right into your phone. And, uh, and so people that are using that have just been sharing about how uh, great of a resource that's been. So also, we tend to cover a lot of ground in our, in our messages. And, and so uh, every week we put a PDF document on our website along with the podcast. Does that make sense? There's a podcast that you can go to listen uh, if you were not here or if you want to listen to it again. But there's a little document icon uh, that's on that same page. You can click that and the, and the outline will pop up for you and all the, uh, the, the references, uh, all the textual references will be in there uh, for you to be able to find. So, hey, how about, we haven't done a giveaway in a while, so I have a Starbucks gift card here. Uh, how about somebody that's been visiting the church uh, over the last few weeks, and you were here for our anniversary service. Tell me why we're using typewriters uh, for our uh, artistic images for this series, Good News. Any, anybody? Somebody that's been visiting for the last few weeks. Any hands popping up? No? No? All right, how about somebody, how about somebody who's not, uh, do I, is, am I missing a hand? All right, come on. What's the, what's the significance of the typewriter in the series? Well, I don't exactly remember the, all the details, but I do remember you telling the story about how you went to this guy's house and that he had all these different types of really cool things in the house that, uh, I think you used the analogy that we were supposed to be the guy, we were supposed to, essentially God is molding us into the letters that we're supposed to be and he's using us to write a story. I would say that's close enough. Come on. Come on. It's good. Awesome. He, he was, it, the, the, the typewriter is, is, is about this idea, like where he said at the end, that God is molding us into, into, into who we want to, to be. It's, the, it's out of Jeremiah, where, where he talks about how the Word of God is supposed to be written on our hearts. You with me? Is that we, we want to be a church that helps you connect to God's Word in such a way that it's not just information in your head, but it's written on the fabric of who you are as a person, and it instructs the way that you live. And so we're using those typewriters all throughout it's, it's this series that we're going to be in, because when you see it, I hope it prompts you to remember that, and to say that prayer. It's, it's in Jeremiah, it's 3133, where you can say, God, I want, write, write your Word on the table of my heart. Write it on me. I just, I want it to get out of my head and into my heart so that it can direct me. And so we are in this series. We're calling it Good News. As you know, uh, that phrase is found all throughout the New Testament. So just a little bit of a recap before we get into the message tonight. It really, it, the, the idea of good news does not start in the New Testament. It's all throughout the Old Testament. So let me give you a couple of examples. Isaiah 52, 7 says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns, which means that the, the good news that this God, the God of the Bible, is the one true God, the sovereign creator of the universe. Isaiah 61.1, which is the verse that Jesus reads the first time he teaches in a synagogue, he speaks about this verse. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and he has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be 
freed. Now, to the Israelites, when they first heard this, when Isaiah was a prophet, that had a practical implication, this idea of being freed from an oppressor. But we also understand that there's a dual meaning here, that there's spiritual freedom that the good news will set us free from. This word, the gospel, which translates good news, it appears 20 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then it appears another 77 more times all the way through the book of Revelation. And the Greek, it's the word euangelion. And then when they were translating the Bible into English way back a long time ago, before any of us were here, come on, they had old English, right, which is why the King James Bible is, is written the way that it is, which is not the Bible. I would say you should be reading because you can't understand it, right? Find a modern-day translation like the New Living Translation is a great one. It's the one that we use here often. King James is good for study, but it's not good for regular reading. All right, so that's, I'll get off that soapbox. All right, so, but in the Old English, Old English, when they saw this word euangelion, they knew that it meant in the Greek good news, so they took the word God, which means good, and then they took the word spell, which means news. So Originally, the word was Godspell, and it meant good news, and then it's evolved over time and has become the word gospel that we know today that you find in your Bible, again, that's translated good news. So let me read you one out of Acts, Acts 20, verses, verse 24. It says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news, the gospel, the euangelion, the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Listen to this one out of Revelation 14, 6 and 7. And I saw another angel flying through the sky carrying the eternal good news, the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people, which reminds us that this good news, it's for everybody, for all people, for all time. Verse 7, fear God, he shouted, and give him glory, for the time has come when he will sit as judge, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. I like that verse that it says that the good news is eternal. I, I like that it says that it's eternal because it reminds us that the message of the good news leads us into eternal life. And that eternal life, it's part of our message as a church, is heaven now, heaven forever. That eternal life is about the heaven that waits for us then, but it's also about the heaven that He wants us to experience now. Through the life that I live, I'm not going to experience all that heaven is going to be for me, but I can bring some of that here, which is part of what we were talking about, those relationships. All right, so that's a little bit of the recap before we get into tonight. So we kicked the service off at our anniversary service talking about how Part of the good news of the Bible is that you and I are going to suffer in this life. Now, I know there's, there's a counterintuitiveness to that. How could suffering be good news? If you weren't here, you have to get that in the podcast. I'm going to reference that a little bit later, but you can get that from the anniversary service the last weekend in January. So, hey, I'm going to start tonight. Tonight's message is entitled, this, this uh, Coke in a bottle here, I'm going to put, because it's distracting me because I really want to drink it. All right, I'm going to put that. It's making me, I'm making my mouth dry. I'm thinking, I need to open that bottle. If somebody has a bottle opener, and if you were to open that, I would be highly into it. Do you have a bottle opener, Marcus? All right, okay, all right. All right. <laughs> I was going to do my little in the college, but I don't think people should know that I know how to do that. That would not be good. Look at this. Come on. The pressure's on. Thank you. How about giving Marcus a hand? All right. Oh, that is so good. Coke in a bottle and sweet tea, right? Are those not two of the most delicious things you've ever tasted? 
have to admit that we were singing the worship, worship song, and it said the sweetest thing I've ever tasted. I did have this moment where I thought, my mom's sweet tea and Coke in a bottle, they're, they're pretty good. They're pretty good. I'm just confessing that to you. All right, just, just sharing. You guys are a little quiet tonight. Are you cold? You're a little, you're frozen, right? All right. My jokes need to get funnier. Is that what you're saying? All right, I hear you. I hear you. You're saying if you want to laugh, then be funnier, Fred. It's not my fault. Hey, when we were at our, our annual sharing service at the beginning of January, every year we've been doing this ever since we came for eight years, that uh, the, the first weekend of the, of the, of, of the new year in January, uh, the sermon time is dedicated to an open mic and people come forward and just share uh, what God has been doing in their life. It's a powerful service, is it not? It's one of my favorite services every year. And, uh, and so this past year, Stephanie Hocannon, I think I saw her, she's in here, she came up and started talking about the story out of Acts chapter 3 uh, and, and the beautiful gate. And when she was up here, when you were up here, Stephanie, sharing about that, God spoke to my heart and said, Fred, this story is supposed to be at the centerpiece of, of this sermon series, The Good News. And so ever since that first weekend in January, I've been studying this story in Acts chapter 3, and that's where we're going to go tonight. I'm excited about this message. We've been working on it, praying through it, and, uh, and I think that you find that it's going to speak to you tonight. Come on, you ready? Hey, let's pray. Father, we just, we thank you for what you're going to do in us tonight. We, we thank you, Father, that you're going you're gonna to Jeremiah us tonight, that you're going to write something on the table of our hearts, that, that this isn't just going to be about information, that there's going to be revelation, that you're going to do something inside of us that's going to be transformational through your Word, that your Word, the Bible, Holy Scripture, it's not just words on a piece of paper that we're supposed to know, that it's words on a piece of paper that are supposed supposed to get so far deep down into who we are that it begins to shape our very identity. Father, we pray that your word would get a hold of us tonight. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said, amen. amen. The beautiful gate. All right, so let's read it together. It's Acts, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the 3 o'clock prayer service. So just to put some context, chronological context in for you. Jesus has died. He's raised himself from the dead. He has had his 40 days of post-resurrection experiences, uh, appearances. The, the, the early disciples, right, have been meeting for some 10 days, and then on the Feast of Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover, that's how we can put all this together, is through the Jewish feast and the calendar, right? And the Holy Spirit comes. Peter gives his first sermon. 3,000 people are saved, and the church is born, and he here we are in Acts 3. That's the Cliff's Notes version you just got. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service, and as they approached the temple, a man who was lame from birth, means he was paralyzed, was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate. We're going to talk about this. All the different gates into the temple. I'm going to have a picture I'm going to put up for you in just a minute. They all had specific names. So he could beg from the people going into the temple. Now when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Now Peter and John looked at him in, intently and said, look at us. The lame man looked up at them, eagerly expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver and gold for you, but I'll give you what I have in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Get up and walk. 
Then Peter took the lame man, come on, by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up. This is the paralytic. He jumped up and stood on his feet and began to walk. And then walking and leaping and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. And when they realized he was the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, right? That's the second time it's mentioned, the beautiful gate. They were absolutely astounded and they all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade where the man was holding tightly to the hand of Peter and John. All right, so let me, let me, I just want you to be able to see it a little bit, right? So, so here's a picture. This is Solomon's colonnade right here, this long thing right here, right? So this is where I believe the beautiful gate was, and lots of other people do too. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement on it, and the reason of this is because these two instances in the Bible are the only documents known to man, even unto day, where a gate is called beautiful. There's no record of any gate of the temple of Jesus' day referred to as beautiful. It's not documented anywhere. It's not written anywhere except right here. Acts 3, that's it. All these gates had names. They had names that were formal names. They had uh, names that were, if we could call them, nicknames that were part of the local vernacular. But nowhere is there any explanation for which one is actually called beautiful. I believe it's this one right here. Let me give you another shot. So if you were to pull back a bird's eye view, what you just saw right here, right, that's over on the other side of this, which is Solomon's colonnade, right? All those columns, that covered area. The church often met in there for services. These two structures right here, you see those? Those two structures right there are where you would come up out of these gates right here. See, because that's on a different level. Now, one of the reasons why a lot of historians believe that that gate that I just showed you was called the beautiful gate is because as you entered through that gate, there was a long corridor and a tunnel that would lead to the steps. It would bring you up through one of those structures into what's called the court of the Gentiles. We're not going to go and do it tonight, but all the different courts were based on what you could be in, based on who you were, your gender, whether you were an Israelite man, priest, and so forth and so on. That's another sermon for another time. But you would come up out of there, and in, in this long corridor, in this long corridor, there was these recessed domes that had all this intricate carvings in it all the way down the corridor. You can pull it up a line. There's pictures of it. If you were to go through that particular gate that I showed you, all the way down this corridor, these beautiful inset domes were there. I think that's one of the reasons why they called that gate beautiful, because it was so unbelievably ornate. I think it's also here in the Bible for us because God is not trying to give us some type of secret knowledge about the names of the gates, right? We know that's not what it's about. I think it's in here because God is giving us a prophetic picture of something powerful. I think that him calling this gate beautiful, referencing it twice in Acts chapter 3, is that he's trying to teach us something about this life and this journey that we are on together. I think he was here also 
Where's my little red iron? I can't find it. I think he was at that gate also because as you can see, most of the people, right, as they would come into the temple, they would come through that side because most of the other gates are outside of the protection of the city walls. And so that's one of the most common interests. So if you were a beggar, right, just saying, you want to have the greatest opportunity to interact with the most possible people. And then it also tells us in the text that, that they went to Solomon's colonnade. So I think they came up after he was healed. They would have turned right there to Solomon's colonnade because that's where the biggest crowd of Christians of the New Testament church would gather for their service during the, 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 during the prayer service in the, in the day. And I think this was a moment that the early church once again saw the power of God move in unexplainable ways. We know this story is in the Bible, one reason, because God is reminding us of the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit that is given to the church, come on, to bear witness to the message of the gospel. But I believe this man was chosen by God to teach the world something that you and I would call beautiful. I think he calls it beautiful, not because he's referring to the gate. I think God makes an emphasis on the word beautiful because I think he's referring to the man's condition. I think he's saying that this man, in his suffering, it's a beautiful thing. It's why we launched our whole series talking about the good news, that part of the good news of this life is that you and I are going to suffer in this life. What we said in that message is that we aren't ready for the glory of heaven until we have endured this life because after we have suffered here, we will never want anything else but the glory that awaits us there. And then we talked about how God is making us ready for the forever that we were born to live. I think this is called the beautiful gate because God wants us to see his condition and that this journey of suffering that he had to endure in this life was a beautiful gift that God had given to him to make him ready for the heaven that he would one day step into. We talked about in that, in that opening message at our anniversary service that there's a, an immunization that God is walking us through so that when we get to heaven, it's the only thing that we're ever going to want. All right, let me give you an example just so you can think maybe I'm not making all this up. Come on. Acts, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Famous verses. So many people stop at, the, at verse 8, but you've got to take it all the way to verse 11. I want to read it all to you. Ecclesiastes 3. Listen to what it says. For everything there is a season. There is a time for every activity under heaven. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to harvest. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. There's a time to tear down and a time to build up. There is a time to cry and a time to laugh and a time to grieve, to grieve and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to turn away. Time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, many people stop here. These are the famous verses in the Bible about seasons. And verse 9 says, what do people really get from all their hard work? Now, see, people that want to say this is Solomon on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit speaking up with the new, picking up with a new thought, he's not picking up with a new thought. These verses are referring to what he just talked about. And this hard work that he's talking about isn't just a generic reference to laboring in this life. He's talking about the hard work that sometimes we 
we give ourselves to to try to change a season before God's sovereign will is ready for it to pass. Verse 10, I have seen the burden that God has placed on us all. What's that burden? The burden is submitting to his sovereignty. The burden is that in our humanity, we don't like the idea that God is going to ask us to suffer in this life. We like Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, 50%, right? We like the idea of some of those seasons, but then for others of these seasons, we, we like, God, if, if you could see to it that I get to be in this list and not that list, that would be okay. I've seen the burden that God has placed on us all. Listen to verse 11. Here it comes. Yet God has made everything, here's the word right here, beautiful. God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity, come on, in the human heart. What does that mean? It means that he's not so concerned about your comfort in this life. He's preparing you for the eternity that's waiting for you in the next life. And that's why all of those things that are hard are called beautiful because they're making ready you ready and me ready for the eternity forever. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from the beginning to the end, right? Solomon's saying this is a hard thing for us to grasp because this is the only world that we know. It's hard for us to say to God, this suffering that I'm in is beautiful. It's hard for us because we're not yet in the place that he wants to give to us, and that's part of this idea. It's a journey of faith. There's a trust that we have to have in the sovereignty of God that there's hardship that he's going to walk you through and he's going to walk me through. And when we walk through it, God says, hey, this is a season that I've created for you to make you ready for eternity. And he calls it beautiful. I think that Acts 3, do I think that there was actually a gate called beautiful? I do. I don't think that's a mistake in the Bible. I think that was part of the local vernacular. I, I, I think, though, that the reason why God in his sovereignty wanted to make it part of the Jewish reference to one of those gates is because he was trying to teach us something about life. And I think he puts it in Acts 3 because he's trying to connect it to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And he puts this word beautiful there to speak to this man's condition, and then he helps us understand it through Ecclesiastes. It is the beautiful gate of suffering. Why else do I believe that it's called the beautiful gate? I think it's called the beautiful gate because it is a gate of healing. Not just because he was physically healed, and I believe that he was, but I believe that his physical healing was a prophetic picture of the spiritual healing that you and I are desperate for. Let me share these two thoughts with you. We are born into this world on the outside of heaven. And we are born into this world on the outside, on the outside of God's family. I think when we read Acts chapter 3, I think God wants us to see ourselves in that picture. I think He wants us to see ourselves sitting outside of this gate. The temple is a powerful picture of God's presence because that's where God's presence dwelt before Jesus died on the cross. We're going to cover that in this series, how the curtain that separated the holiest of holies in the central most part of the temple structure. The Bible says, right, it was torn from top to bottom, signifying that now the Spirit of God was going to come and live inside of us. He didn't want to live in a building. He wanted to live inside of us, and it wasn't possible until Jesus died for our sins so that He could come and live with us just like He lived with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of time. 
I think this story in Acts 3 is given to us because He wants us to see ourselves. That you and I, we are the beggar that sits outside when we're born into this world. Can you back that slide up for me, Katie? That, that you and I are born into this world and we are on the outside of God's family. And we're on the outside of relationship with Him. You and I are born right in that spot, and we are born as spiritual paralytics because there's not a darn thing that you and I can do to help that condition. You with me? We are desperate for someone else to come and do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Listen to John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He came into the very world He created. But the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But listen to what it says in verse 12. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. They are reborn. Not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or a human plan, but a birth that comes from God. He wants us to see ourselves as the beggar by the beautiful gate because he wants us to understand that we are desperate for something that only Jesus can do for you and that only Jesus can do for me. He invites us in through the gate into his presence, into the life that he created us to live, into the hope of the heaven that's to come and the hope of the heaven that's on this earth. And when you make your vow of devotion to Christ for the first time and take your first spiritual breath, there's supposed to be something inside of you that begins walking and leaping and praising God, just like the story in Acts chapter 3. Because you understand that you're no longer on the outside you're on the inside. It's one of the reasons why I believe that this is the gate that it's referring to because by it being this gate, it helps us understand this powerful picture of being on the outside and God wanting us to be on the in. God's always writing a story. See, when, when, when you stop reading the Bible just for information and start reading it for revelation like we've talked about, you will keep asking yourself the question, what's the story here? God wants you to become a, a, a spiritual journalist. You're with me. Where, where's, where's the story in this, God, right? We get bogged down. Where do we get bogged down in the, in, the, in the Bible reading plan every year, right? Some of you are like, oh, I was bogged down last week, right? I've already started for you, right? We, we, we like, we in, we're doing the chronological reading plan, so we're in Genesis. We like Genesis. Lots of great stories, right? We get into, into Exodus, and then we're reminded of how bad that movie, Exodus, Gods, and Kings, really was. And, uh, and so, so, so we, re, we get into Exodus. That has lots of stories, like Genesis, Exodus, and then we hit Leviticus. It's like somebody slams on the brakes, right? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You're like, please, Jesus, let me get to Psalms or something, right? Don't skip that part of the reading plan. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because God has a story that he's trying to tell. And he added all of that in, not because he wants to frustrate you, is because that he wants you to see the story that he's writing. Let me just give you an example, and then we're going to jump back to this text. I, I want to build on this idea of God writing a story. We shared this years ago 
First time I ever heard, heard Bob Sorge, uh, Bob Sorge, S-O-R-G-E, Bob Sorge, anything that he writes, any podcast that you can find of him, he's amazing. But we heard him years ago when Pastor Justin and I were at the Elam Conference, the Elam Fellowship is the fellowship that we're part of as a, as a church. We heard Bob Sorge break down these texts, and it was, it was just, it was revelatory. I just, I want to use it as an example of the story that, that God is writing, and then I'm going to connect this to this idea of the story of the beautiful gate. So Exodus 17, 1 through 16, it says, at the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin. It, it's, there's, there's nothing, that, that, it's, it's the wilderness of, the, of, the, of Mount Sinai. That's why it's called the wilderness of sin. And, and moved from place to place. Eventually they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more the people complained against Moses, give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? Why are you testing the Lord, right? So they've just come out of the parting of the Red Sea, and there's just been these incredible miracles that God has performed, and then all of a sudden they think, okay, now God's done all those things for us, but He's going to let us die here in the desert. But tormented by thirst, they continue to argue with Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They're ready to kill me. The Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people, take your staff, and hit them in the face. No, that's not what it says. I knew I was going to get you at some point, right? I said to loosen you up a little bit. All right, I earned a drink for that one. They're so good. That, right? That's what he wants to do. That's what you want to do, right? When you're mad with people, and you, right, there's something inside of you that you, you're frustrated he says, hey, take your, take your, take your, what, 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 where am I? Walk over there, take your staff, the, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai, strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Now, was that about giving people water to drink? You better believe it was because they were dying. But it wasn't just about that. It's about God telling a story. It's about God telling a story. Numbers 20. Oh, come on. This is good. Numbers 20, 6, verse 6. All right, so years have passed, right? Years have, have, have passed, and they find themselves, right? They've wandered through the desert. Again, this is another sermon for another time, but right, 40 years, right? There's a whole generation that's to die off before they're allowed to go in the promised land. They're at the end of that 40 years. They're coming to the end of that, and they're approaching the promised land. Moses and Aaron turned away from the people and went to the entrance of the tabernacle where they fell down face on the ground, right? So this is about 40 years later from what we just read. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord says, you and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community, right? Because why, what's happened? They're in another place. They're in a desert. There's no water. And so the people are angry. And Moses and Aaron, they're going to God for direction. It says, as the people watch, speak to the rock. It doesn't say strike it. He says, speak to the rock over there, and it will pour out its water. And you will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and the livestock. So Moses goes over there, and what does he do? What's he do? Yeah, he strikes the rock. And then what is God's punishment of him? You're not going in the promised land. That seems harsh, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem harsh, right? All, I, I've been studying this for reading commentary until Bob Sorge talked about it. I was like, that's the first time I ever heard the explanation that I think is right. Because 
God is telling a story. And if you mess with God's story, it's trouble. You see, God was creating a prophetic picture because Jesus is the rock. Genesis to Revelation and everything between, He is our rock, the rock of our salvation. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. John chapter 7, talking about rivers of living water are going to flow out of us. He strikes the rock the first time because it's a prophetic picture of the death of Jesus, that God was going to allow Jesus to be struck. He was going to allow His life to be broken. He was going to allow Him to die for the sins of the world so living water could flow from him to us. And then the second time they get to the rock, he's supposed to speak to the rock, not strike the rock, because Jesus only has to die once. And after he dies once, then it only is going to take you and I speaking to the rock for that water to come through my vow of devotion to Christ. It's powerful, isn't it? It unlocks it. So now we go, well, of course there was punishment for Moses because To whom much is given, much is required. And he was messing with the picture. This man in Acts chapter 3, I bet many people walked by him on that mat and pitied him. I bet many people walked by him all throughout his life and felt sorry for him. I'm glad that's not me. I wonder what sin he committed that God would cause him to suffer like that. There he was at the gate, beautiful, day in and day out, and God was smiling at him from the beginning because God knew, I'm going to use this man to tell a story. I'm going to use this man's life to teach the world something about Jesus, that I want people to see themselves as the paralytic that's born at the gate outside of the family of God, outside of relationship with the creator of the universe, outside of the plan and the destiny that you and I were put in this world to live out and become the person that we're supposed to be, the relationships that we're supposed to find. Come on. And that list just keeps going. And the day that you were born, we were born right there, paralyzed spiritually. Desperate for Jesus to come along and take us by the hand and heal us in a way that only He can heal so that we could get up out of that place of depravity and step into the community of the church and in fellowship with the Father. How about Romans 10, 9 and 10? If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You only have to speak to the rock now. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. It is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. You can go from the outside to the inside. And it is by openly declaring your faith by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Acts 3, the Acts 3 event, the Acts 3 story of this paralytic being healed at the gate beautiful is the fulfillment of the promise that the living water that flows from Jesus heals body and soul. And when we accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers We are invited 
to move from the outside to the inside of his family. We're invited to move from the outside to the inside of having the hope of the heaven that is to come and the hope of the heaven come on that is today. So we owe Stephanie O'Cannon a debt of gratitude. Come on for talking about that, right? Do we not? The anniversary service. That was a very failed attempt at clapping. I just okay, come on. You can do that over. All right, there you go. There you go. All right. All right, so let's shift gears a little bit. Can we do that? Anybody wondering what this is for? This is my favorite shirt. I keep things that I like for a long time, right? Much to the frustration of my wife, right? One of my favorite pairs of shoes I've had for over 20 years, right? Keep shoe trees in them, polish them. They're all one shoe, so you can't get them resold. Anybody ever had soles, uh, shoes resold? I know, I know, I'm the only one. I said, okay, I see a few people confessing now, right? My wife says to me all the time, Fred, life's too short to wear one pair of shoes for that long. All right, come on, let's get a new pair of shoes, right? But I, 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 I keep stuff, right, that, that, that I like. I've had this shirt for over 20 years. It's the most comfortable shirt that I own. Love it. I don't, see, and if I start to like something, I don't wear it as much because I'm afraid I'm going to wear it out. Anybody else a little bit like me? I know, come on, confess, come on, all right, there you are, you're out there, you're out there, I know you are. So, Super Bowl party at the Nowatney's house. Somebody said, an, oh, already, I know. So I thought, I want to be comfortable, right? I've got these pair of jogging pants that I like, I've had them probably for about 20 years too. So I thought, I'm going to get my most comfortable outfit that I have. And then I thought, well, you know, I'm, you know the Suffolk planted, campus just planted, and there's probably going to be people that are there. And, you know, maybe I need to dress a little bit more respectable as a lead pastor. And then I thought, who am I kidding, right? Yeah. So that lasted all of about 13 seconds. And so I, I, pick, I got this out of my drawer, and I thought, I'm going to wear my most comfortable shirt, Right. And as I held it, I had, this is the thought, I kid you not, I kid you not. Some of you aren't going to come back here because you just think that pastor is way too weird for me, right? So I had this thought, it's a white shirt and we're going to be eating a lot. And what if I get something on it, right? What if I stain it? And I, and I said to myself, Fred, you, have, you need deliverance right now in Jesus' name, right? I kept praying for myself, in the, right? And so I said, that's crazy. And so I put it on. I put it on. I kid you not, first plate of food. First plate of food in. I'm going to cut a meatball in half. Right? That thing shot out from under that fork <laughs> like it was from a cannon, and it lodged right under my arm right here. True story. I'm not embellishing any part of the story. And then I thought, right, I don't want to get this on Nate's furniture, yeah? And so, I'm, and, and so it's starting to slip, and I'm trying to hold this meatball, right? And so it works its way down my whole entire side. So instead of it just hitting me and bouncing off, I have a, a meatball sauce streak all the way down this arm and all the way down my side. I'm not kidding you. And I thought to myself, right, I wonder if Laura would do a load of laundry for me. And then I said, if I go down there and ask that, my wife would probably punch me right dead in the mouth in front of all these people, right? So I go into the bathroom, right, and I'm just dousing it, getting water, trying to dilute this thing, because we just got there, right? I'm going to be here for hours before I can get to the, the bottle of black magic, <laughs> right? 
This is voodoo in a bottle, right? Because there is not one, it was this arm right here, right? Yeah, you should go out and buy this. I'm telling you, unbelievable. Stain came completely out. Completely out. Why am, I, why am I telling you that story? Why am I telling you that story? Because from the day that you and I are born, we start staining our soul with sin. Every selfish thought, every moment of dishonesty, every coarse word, every moment of passivity, right? That one time that God wanted us to share our faith and we cowered and we walked away, that one day that God said, hey, you need to read the Bible today. There's something I want to teach you. And we just said, I'd rather be lazy. How long have you been living? I'm going to turn 49 in March. My soul has a lot of stains. It's, it's, it's why at the story of the woman that was caught in adultery, when Jesus says, you who without sin cast the first stone, and it says all the older people walked away first. You know why? Because they had a whole lot of stains on the shirt of their soul. It took the younger people a little bit longer, but at some point they realized I might have one or two myself. And can I just tell you, there is nothing that you can buy, not even at Whole Foods, that you can put on your soul to take out the stain of sin. It does not exist. You can't. Mankind, from the beginning of time, has been trying to deal with their own sin forever. And from the beginning, God has been saying to you and me, you can't do it. You can't do it. You're stained from head to toe. You're a mess. You're the paralytic that's outside the gate. And you are in desperate need of cleansing. So we have this verse in Isaiah. Listen to this. Oh, I love this. Isaiah 118. Come now. Let's settle this, he says. Let's settle it. Though your, skin, your sins are like scarlet, which is red. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. I invite the worship team to come back up. It's amazing, isn't it? God says, I don't care what kind of stain you have on your life. I can get it out. I can get it out. My favorite thing to drink when I was a little kid was Welch's grape juice. Anybody else, right? They had all those commercials on TV, right? It was the, one of the, it was expensive, right? We didn't have it very often. It was a treat. I kid you not. If, if, and if I wanted some, I couldn't just get it. When I was a little kid, I had to go tell my mother I want some Walter's grape juice. And she has this cup dispenser. She still has it today. We're going to visit her tomorrow. And it's just her. My dad passed away a year ago. They still live in the house that, or he, she still lives in the house that I grew up in. And, and she has this plastic cup dispenser that's nailed to a cabinet, right? by the sink and she would pop one of those little plastic Dixie cups out of there and she would fill it up just halfway, right? Just halfway with Welch's grape juice and I would have to use two hands, right? 
I thought to myself, one day I'm going to be 18 and I'm going to be standing in the kitchen with two hands on this Dixie cup that's half full. Why was that? Because there was nothing that existed known to man when I was a kid that would get Welch's grape juice out of anything, right? If, once, if you got Welch's grape juice on something, you were done. You were done. That's what sin is. You try to not spill it. You can't help it. Because you're human beings. We're not perfect. Being selfish comes easy. Doing wrong things comes easy. Choosing pleasure comes easy. Taking shortcuts, it comes easy. Lying to our parents, cheating on a test, drinking more than you should, buying stuff you're not supposed to, going to websites you have no business being at, right? we We could keep going, could we not? Stain after stain after stain after stain after stain after stain. And you know what God still calls you? He still calls you beautiful. He still calls you beautiful. Because there is something that he can give to you that you cannot give to yourself that will make you clean. When I made a vow of devotion to Christ when I was 23 years old in December of 1990, I woke up that next morning and I felt clean. And I am telling you that there is nothing on this earth that's as good as that feeling. And do we keep making mistakes? Sure we do. But God has a big old bottle of the blood of Jesus that he's willing to keep giving you over and over and over again. But for every one of us, for every one of us, there's the very first time that we come to Jesus and say, I need you to make me clean. You, you got to come for the first time sometime. And my hope is that for some of you here tonight, even if it's just one of you, that you would say tonight, I want to come for the first time. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads. Bow your head with me. Bow your head. We just want to create a moment of privacy and a moment of dignity for people that are here in this room. If, if you're here tonight and you would say, Fred, as I look back on the story of my life, I cannot find a moment where I made a vow of devotion to Christ. If you can't find that moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand right now. Just slip it up. Just slip it up. If you can't find a moment in your life where you made a vow of devotion to Christ, I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand. So maybe you're, maybe you're here tonight and you would say, I've made a vow of devotion to, to Christ, Fred, but my life is probably a little bit more stained than it's supposed to be. We're going to stand in just a minute, and there's some people that are in the back corner behind you on either side that are here to pray with you. And they're there every week. It might be different people, but every single week at the end of our service, there are people that are back there to pray for you. So as we stand in just a moment to sing, I I just want to encourage you, if you're here tonight, maybe you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ and you couldn't quite bring yourself to raise your hand, maybe because you were afraid of what we were going to ask next, then go back to one of these two places and tell them, "I, I want to make a vow of devotion to Christ tonight and let them pray with you. Come on and you can wake up tomorrow clean. And if you're here tonight and you would say, I just, I just need to tell someone that my life, it just, it feels dirty. 
And you just need to have this sense of, can we just use this analogy of going through the laundry of Jesus to give you that feeling of cleansing again? Because he wants to give you that gift. He doesn't want you to feel like you're living on the outside. He wants you to feel like you're living on the inside. He wants you to see yourself as as beautiful as he sees you. Stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, for everyone here tonight who needs a moment of prayer, for everyone here tonight who needs to make a vow of devotion to Christ, everyone here tonight who, who, who maybe just needs to wake up feeling clean tomorrow, that they wouldn't, they wouldn't let this moment pass them by. They wouldn't let this moment pass them by. Father, even if there's a little bit of a line, Father, that they would wait for the gift that you want to give to them of the cleansing that can only come by your hand. Come on, and everybody said together in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.